ship Taylor was wrecked on the coast of Lambay, north of Dublin, on 28th January 1854. She had sailed from Liverpool with a large number of emigrants heading for the gold fields of Australia. Gold had been discovered at Ballarat about a year and a half or two years before, and this new land of opportunity was very attractive to emigrants. She was built specially for the Australian trade and was what's known as an extreme clipper, being very narrow, fast and well-built. Three masts, but unusually for the time, she was built of iron. Iron shipbuilding had occurred earlier, but they were mostly small vessels, except for the Great Britain, which was a steamship, and there were some iron warships. But Taylor was described as the largest iron sailing ship of her time. She was built in an unusual place at Warrington, the Bank Key Foundry. And today it's hard to believe that a ship could be built there because it's a retail park on the banks of the river. But it was a hive of industry in the 1850s with all kinds of ironwork being assembled there and made there. And they built some half a dozen ships which were launched into the River Mersey and floated down to the Liverpool estuary. The foundry was owned by John Taylor, who lived nearby in Cheshire at uh, Roddington Hall. And there's a pub directly opposite that, uh, his former house called the Taylor Arms. The foundry was one of the leading makers of steam engines and railway equipment of the time. And even in the Second World War made the Matilda tank, as well as steam engines for India. It was subsumed into the bigger diesel engine making factory at Newton Le Willows subsequently, which itself was taken over by Man Diesel and was closed in the 1990s. The ship was designed by John Rennie, who was a famous shipbuilder and came from the Rennie family of engineers. And he was a member of the Compass Committee and had patented a special rudder and rudder mechanism that could move the rudders of larger ships. So he was amongst the leading ship designers of his time. The original sailing date was to have been 20th of November 1853, but they delayed that whilst final fitting out and equipping was completed, as well as waiting for the passengers to be assembled. The shipping line was the White Star Line, which was the precursor of the Ismay's White Star Line that owned the Titanic. The White Star Line was taken over by Ismay about 1890 when it went into financial trouble. The Taylor was not owned by the White Star Line. It was owned by the Moore family of Moorsfort Latin in Tipperary, who were ship owners and they chartered ships to the White Star Line. The Taylor and its story was forgotten until the 1960s when scuba divers discovered the remains of the ship, very extensive remains, on the northeast corner of Lambay in a little cove which not unusually is called Taylor Bay. This is not to be confused with the earlier named Taylor's Rocks which are also on Lambay and have no connection with the Taylor whatsoever. Quite a lot of material about the Taylor survives because the archive at Newton Le Willows has the construction details for the ship, including the survey by the Inspector of Iron Ships, 
bills of materials, the cost of the different parts of the ship that were bought into the shipyard, and lots of detail. The Warrington um, Museum has quite a number of artefacts of the Taylor, including uh, launching ribbons, etchings of the ship, and some of the items that were recovered from it. So the wreck was reasonably well remembered in England, but in Ireland it's almost unknown except in North County Dublin. The ship set sail from Liverpool with 650 passengers, approximately, because there's significant doubt as to how many people were aboard. There were official lists of survivors. There was a list of people who were passengers officially, But there seems to have been a lot of passengers taken on late in the loading of the ship. There are also some mysteries in that there's a memorial card to two people uh, called Stott. And there's no list of them being aboard the ship anywhere except this memorial card says they were lost on the Taylor. Similarly, there were a large number of babies on board and small children. And they would not have been counted as passengers in their own right because they were travelling with their families. It would just have been a mother and child. Entire families were aboard working their passage, or rather their father was working their passage, such as the ship's surgeon, Mr Cunningham, who was travelling with his wife and all his family. He was engaged as a crewman for a shilling as the ship's surgeon and doubtless his his family got an assisted cheap passage. But most of the passengers were relatively well-to-do tradespeople. They were not penniless pauper emigrants, and there were none of them on official British government-assisted passages to Australia. From Ireland, there were some 87 passengers, from Clare, Brockshane outside Ballymena, one or two from Dublin, one or two from Limerick, and some from the Midlands. They had travelled to Liverpool and were then changing ships to go on to Australia because no ships travelled to Australia from Dublin at that time, nor indeed since. Of the 650 passengers, there were 103 women, of whom only three survived. The vast bulk of the passengers were male passengers and they would have been going to work in Australia. It was quite common at the time for a father of a household to go out to Australia and be followed by his family or his wife if things turned out successfully. Many of the women were not accompanied by their husbands because they were going to join them. Typical of the emigrants of the time, the group from Brockshane, a group of about 30 people, were going to Belfast in Australia which was a colony already established of Northern Ireland people. The town is nowadays known as Port Phillip. There were also German and Dutch passengers on board, again emigrants who had come across from Germany to the east coast of England, travelled on to Liverpool and were then bound for Australia from Liverpool. There was even some French passengers. The crew were assembled at Liverpool. Captain Noble, who was in charge of the ship, was a prominent seaman, though only 29 years of age, 
and had completed a number of voyages, even to California and the gold fields in America. And he was accompanied by some crew members uh, who were Chinese men. They had accompanied him on a previous voyage in California. There was a large contingent of seamen from the Dalmatian coast, nowadays known as Croatia. And then there was a number of English seamen and a company of apprentices who were on their first voyage as apprentice seamen. Many of the crew survived because they were able to swim or they were uh, they had a facility to swing ashore on ropes that hung from the masts when the ship was wrecked. By contrast, the women passengers nearly all died. All but two of the children, and there were 56 on board, uh, were lost and most of the survivors were male passengers. The ship sailed from Liverpool and almost immediately a number of things were wrong. The ship was new and untried and it was said that it was difficult to manage the ropes through the blocks once they got wet because they swelled and they were hard to pull through the blocks to raise and lower the sails. The compasses had been swung That means they had been checked for accuracy by turning the ship and facing various points that were known bearings in the Liverpool harbour. But after the compasses had been swung, there was an iron steamer as deck cargo was taken on board and perhaps other goods were taken on board. Maybe there was some, some mention of a metal shed or hut had been put on board. So perhaps these things caused deviations of the compass. The iron masts also made it impossible to carry out a a manoeuvre where a spare compass was put at the top of the mast and read through a prism. Now, this would have been possible on one of the wooden masts on the ship, but the other two masts were of iron. The ship set sail and almost immediately was on the wrong course. Some suggest that there's a set in the Irish Sea which drives a ship northwards at certain states of the tide. And this was blamed for the stranding of the Great Britain at Dundrum Bay in Northern Ireland. But whatever happened, the actual course that the ship pursued was much more northerly out of Liverpool, going around the island of Anglesey, and heading up to almost, well, not towards the Isle of Man, but in that direction, instead of heading in a more southerly course. It's also said that the there was a slotting effect where the ship was pushed sideways by the strong wind interacting with the sails, again driving the ship northwards off our course. Ironically, if the ship had been where the intended course was, it would likely have run on the Arklow banks. But instead, it ran ashore much more north on the rocky shore of Lambay Island. The position on Lambay Island has to be described. The cliffs are about 80 to 100 feet high in a narrow cove. And when the crew realised that the ship was close to shore, they dropped the anchors but to no avail because the anchors dragged and the chains snapped. And so the ship was thrown sideways onto a shelf of rock on the side of the cove. For a short time, the ship remained upright and in position, 
and during that time crew members got ropes ashore and managed to clamber ashore. Some of the passengers clambered ashore on these ropes and were assisted. The last man to escape the ship was Captain Noble who jumped in the water and swam ashore and was assisted up onto the rocks by people already there. One man climbed the mast and tied himself there and was rescued the following day. He was very lucky not to die of hypothermia. But unfortunately, something like 260 passengers were drowned in the attempts to get ashore or were just washed away. The tailor had five anchors, at least. The two main ones were lost as she tried to keep offshore. One of these was sold at auction when it had been recovered just after the wreck. And two were dropped to try to keep the ship from slipping back into deeper water when she hit the rocks. And the anchors are now on the plinths at Rush and Port Ran. The anchors failed to keep the ship ashore and she slipped back into deeper water, causing the deaths of many of, of, many of the passengers. Divers discovered the wreck in the late 1960s and they recovered a vast amount of pottery from the wreck. These were of multiple patterns, baronial halls, willow pattern, Chinese pattern and so on. The cargo of the tailor consisted of, apart from the passengers, a substantial load of agricultural machinery, slate headstones, roofing slates, which were used as ballast in the ship down at the lower holds, and a vast load of pottery. The pottery had come from uh, pottery in Scotland and was of numerous patterns. This was not top-class material, it was uh, seconds that were being disposed of on the Australian emigrant market. Many of these uh, items have been recovered and are in museums in Warrington, Dublin, Maritime Museum in Dunleary, and a lot is in private hands as well. It was the most normal souvenir of the wreck. When the ship was wrecked, the three Chinese men that were in the crew swung ashore on ropes and ran to the Dockerill household on Lambay Island to get help. Other passengers managed to get ashore on ropes that the Chinese men had taken ashore and the last man off was Captain Noble who swam ashore and was helped up onto the rocks. A passenger tied himself to the mast out of way of the waves and was rescued the following day by the Coast Guard boat. A French man came ashore with a small child carried in his teeth whilst he clung to the rope and this child became known as the orphan child. After a number of days he was identified as Arthur Charles Griffiths and he was taken in charge by his grandmother who came across to Ireland to collect him. Unfortunately six weeks later he died in Hereford probably because of pneumonia encountered in the ordeal of the tailor. Curiously, a memorial card of Thomas Stott and Sarah, his wife, is among documents associated with the tailor. And the card clearly says that they perished on the wreck of the tailor off Lambay Island on the Irish coast while bound for Melbourne. But there's no record of them being passengers on any passenger list. So one doesn't know how many passengers were on board the tailor. 
My estimate is upwards of 650, of whom at least 250 were drowned. There's a, a memorial that was in Tisarin Church near Banagher to Arthur George Lestrange. And he was lost at sea on the Taylor, though his family didn't know for some time that he was on the ship. There are very few gravestones or memorials to people lost on the Taylor. Some 100 bodies were recovered and buried in a mass grave on Lambay, where there's a small cemetery and a wall around it. Other bodies were washed ashore at Malahide some time later. One of the Brockshane party is buried up there. Two bodies were brought ashore at Dublin on the boat that went to Lambay to rescue the passengers. And they, those two bodies were taken to Malahide for the inquest. One was a boy with a wooden leg and the other was the first mate. A further body taken ashore was that of one of the children of Mr. Cunningham, the ship's doctor. And that body was collected by his uncle and taken and buried in Scotland in a place called Pittenween. But these are the only memorials to people lost on the Taylor. The Passenger Manifest is an interesting one. Apart from the mysteries associated with people lost, at the inquest the clearance clerk said 576 on board, 282 saved and 294 lost. And that's based on local brokers list. Captain Walker at the inquiry says there appear to have been 13 saloon passengers, 445 steerage and 70 crew, amounting to 515. Newspaper accounts count for 479, while the Warrington paper has the highest estimate being 640 aboard. However, when the list of names is assembled, 677 passengers can be named. 282 saved and 395 lost. Tellingly, the Illustrated London News says that the ship had accommodation for 680 passengers. These were hardy, brave souls because at least 86 survivors went out a month later on the White Star's next ship to Australia, the Golden Era. So there were three inquiries into the loss of the Taylor. The first and most immediate was the inquest which was held by Mr. Davis in his hotel, the Grand Hotel in Malahide. And it took place only three days after the wreck. The inquest was officially about the two victims whose bodies they had, because at that time the inquest was held literally over the bodies of the victims. And it came to various conclusions about the ship that... It indeed had hit the rocks of Lambay, north of Dublin. There was evidence given as to the general circumstances of the wreck and the conclusion, of course, was death by drowning. There was a Board of Trade inquiry which went into significant detail. That was held in Dublin and evidence was heard about the setting sail from Liverpool, the various lighthouses being seen at the Calf of Man, they thought, and at the point of Anglesey. Very little explanation was given about why the ship was so far north of its course. The compasses were examined in detail because not everything about magnetism and compasses was understood at the time. And there was a compass committee in Liverpool 
As I've mentioned, Mr. Rennie, the designer of the ship, was one of the members of that committee. So there was awareness of the inaccuracies of compasses and various attempts made to correct these inaccuracies and to manage the reading of compasses accurately. And a third inquiry was by the inspector of iron ships, who had certified the tailor, and there was an anxiety to find out if building ships of metal was superior or inferior to building wooden ships. Wooden ships, they feared, could be more resilient in the event of shipwreck, though that doesn't seem to be intuitive. But divers were sent down to examine the damage and how the ship had been breached, and the reports were sent to the Inspector of Iron Ships and Mr Grantham. Captain Noble lost his certificate on board the ship, and the question arose as to whether his certificate should be restored. And a year later, his captain's certificate was reissued, and he took the Earl of Sefton another ship to Australia in 1855. But he died at Liverpool in 1861, aged only 35, and he's buried at Toxteth. He had taken to drink, and his health suffered very badly thereafter. One of the outcomes of the Taylor shipwreck was that huge efforts were made to look after the survivors. And so they were marooned on the island of Lambay, and as soon as the passengers that survived were ashore, various efforts were made to assist them in their plight. They were frozen, they were wet, this was January, and there was a very small population on Lambay, so there wasn't an awful lot of food. The initial message to the mainland, because the place where the ship was wrecked was well out of sight of the mainland, would have been the Coast Guards, where the, the, who had a station on Lambay, and they would have got a message ashore at Malahide or Rush. And immediately local gentry sent their stewards out to the island with food, clothing, blankets and so on. So two men went into Dublin and reported the loss to the Lloyd's agent. He immediately chartered a steamer, loaded it with provisions and set sail for Lambay. And the vast majority of the passengers were brought on this ship back into Dublin where they were looked after by organisations such as the Shipwreck Mariners Society and other folk. A fund was established and money collected to assist the passengers who of course had lost everything. Many of them sailed for Liverpool on the steamers almost immediately. But the fund established a a substantial sum. When a payment had been made to the various survivors, there was a residue left in the fund and it was used to establish a medal and minor reward system for saving life in the Irish Sea. And some 50 Taylor medals were awarded for gallant rescues and small sums paid to fishermen who had assisted in rescues. The residue of the fund was applied to providing an engine for the Dunleary lifeboat in the early 1900s. And that really is the end of the Taylor story. 
Today, the Taylor is visited by scuba divers. It lies in about 16 metres of water off the rocky shore on Lambay. And divers usually see the blank headstones that were for Australia. The roofing slates are easily visible. The ship's mast lies to one side of the wreck. It has reinforcements inside and this links with the account in the documents relating to the shipbuilding where the masts were reinforced with strips of metal which they called feathers. Divers see the chains leading to the shore and these were where the anchors were dropped. At the time of the wreck, uh, divers salvaged much of the cargo of the Taylor, which was timber taken from the decking, some of the goods that were there, and they also investigated the sides of the ship to see what way it, the hull had been breached and damaged. Their report was from Mr Grantham, the inspector of iron ships. Divers recovered a lot of the crockery that was on the Taylor, and it's now on display in various museums around Ireland, and some of it is in private hands. The wreck is broken and flattened because the area of the coast there is very dynamic and in an easterly gale there can be colossal waves right into that gully, reaching up as high as the tops of the cliffs. The wreck lies on sand, which moves forward and back, sometimes exposing the wreck and sometimes covering the wreck. Sometimes hardly anything is visible. The loss of the Taylor was a terrible tragedy, and there was much inquiries and investigations into why it could have happened the way it did. The crew were described by some passengers as inexperienced and not speaking English, but the foreignness of the crew would not have undermined their capability as seamen, and certainly the Chinamen were experienced crewmen. There was a large number of apprentices on board, and as many as 40 of the 70 crew were stewards who would not have been seamen. So there was an allegation that the ship was undermanned. Then there was the problem of the compasses being inaccurate. And the only thing that might have been done would have been to push a compass away from the iron ship up at the top of the wooden mast and read it through a prism. There was no explanation why this wasn't done and it was common enough practice. Ship's compasses had been swung, but carelessly, iron material in the form of the river steamer and the metal hut had been put on the deck of the ship after the compasses had been swung, and this would have made them inaccurate. The set on the Irish Sea driving the ship northwards wasn't mentioned in connection with the Taylor but it was mentioned in connection with the wreck of the Great Britain and would explain the strange course of the ship. The Taylor was an extreme clipper, very narrow in beam, and carried a lot of sail, and there would have been a slotting effect driving the ship somewhat sideways from her course. This is the effect similar to that of an aircraft wing giving lift, and it gives another direction to the flow of air and the course of the ship. And the slotting effect, along with the strong easterly wind, would also have driven the ship sideways and northwards towards the Isle of Man. The difficulty in raising and lowering sails due to the swelling of brand new ropes in the blocks was also mentioned. And 
When the ship was nearing shore, it was found not possible to drop the sails to stop her being driven onto the shore. However, a sailing ship had very little chance once it was being driven by a strong wind onto a lee shore, and Lambay was a lee shore in the easterly wind. The lighthouses were not correctly identified, and Point Linus was seen through the driving mist and rain, but it may have been mistaken for the calf of man. And so there was some confusion about what lighthouses had been seen. And finally, even if the ship was on its course, it was driving easterly, and one purported track would have taken it into the Arklow Bank. And so it was not on a true course down the Irish Sea. The Taylor was the fifth worst loss of life in shipwrecks on the Irish coast, and in 1854 was barely ten years after the worst of the Irish famine. It was a time of great poverty, not only in Ireland, but throughout Europe, and even in England, from where the majority of the emigrants were coming from. The cotton towns of Lancashire and the woollen towns of Yorkshire were not enjoying prosperity. It's one of many sailing ship disasters of that period. Almost as bad was the loss of the Pomona on the coast of Wexford, also from Liverpool with emigrants. And even much later, the Norge was lost on Rockhall with Swedish emigrants. Emigrant ship disasters were an unfortunate factor of the times. It had echoes later when the Titanic was lost, also of the White Star Line carrying emigrants to, to the new lands. 